This is Graham Lynch and welcome to Comms Day Live. It's a pretty uh, wet and miserable day here in Sydney today as I'm recording this. I hope it's a little brighter wherever you may be. We've got a um, pretty full program today in a short week with the Australia Day holiday, of course. Uh, We speak with Rowan Pearce, the executive editor of Comms Day, about the newest telco to list on the ASX and also the latest ACCC salvo against Google. We'll also be talking to Chief Editor Simon Ducks about the arrival of open radio access networks in Australia, as well as an interesting new diversification into NBN Wholesale from Field Solutions Group. But first up, Andy Penn, the CEO of Telstra. He gave a set-piece speech to the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia this week on a rather ambitious topic, the future of the workplace. It would have been compelling listening for other chief executives of other industries looking for cues from a peer at the bleeding edge of the so-called new normal. And Andy Penn didn't let them down. His overall message was very clear. You have to live with change because there's simply too much uncertainty right now not to. Let's have a listen. I know many of us saw the Christmas break in particular as the finishing line for 2020 and a chance to put the year behind us in the hope that in 2021 things would be a little easier or maybe at least a little clearer. Unfortunately, I think the reality is there is every chance that 2021 will be even more uncertain than 2020. The facts are we still don't know how this pandemic will evolve, what difference the vaccine will make and when, when we'll be able to travel again and to where, or when we'll be able to get back to the office on a consistent basis. On a personal level and on so many different fronts, I've never felt less certain or less clear about which direction our world will take from here. And I know that I'm not alone in this. And because of this uncertainty, there seems to be a strong desire for things to return to normal. I think as humans, we like structure in our lives. We crave routine. It makes us feel safe. It's natural, therefore, for us to wish for the world around us to feel normal. But I think that this is the wrong thinking, as it will never return to normal. How we work, how we travel, and how we live generally will not look the same again as it did 12 months ago. It is therefore better that we spend our energy in accepting these changes that need to come and embrace a new way of living and a new way of working. As leaders, we need to provide and find ways to provide clarity and confidence amongst the noise of these uncertain times. Most importantly as leaders, though, we also need to see the opportunities in 2021 that stem from the disruption of 2020. We need to do things differently, show up differently as companies and as a country. Now, I'm an optimist by nature, and I never underestimate the ingenuity and creativity of humans to adapt. There are many examples through history where bold decisions made in the wake of a crisis, fundamentally changed trajectory. We all know the story of Singapore, which prior to the Second World War was a tiny economy, whilst the Philippines was the biggest in Southeast Southeast Asia. What Singapore did after the war, though, was to plan longer term and despite little land and no natural resources, but with bold thinking, transformed itself into a major manufacturing and financial powerhouse and one of the world's most prosperous nations. Here in Australia, we've seen many smaller examples, particularly in hospitality, which was devastated by the necessary restrictions in Victoria last year. One of Melbourne's most well-known restaurants 
was doing more than 1,000 covers on a Saturday night in the peak of the lockdown whilst the curfews were in place through the rapid launch of a Providor service. Amazingly, this was more than twice the number of covers able to do pre-COVID and at a higher average revenue per customer. As in any crisis, the winners, of course, though, therefore, will be those that make the right decisions in these moments of inflection and change. That is true for countries, that is true for political movements, that is true for companies, and it's true for all of us as individuals as well. So let's not strive to return to normal. Let's do the opposite and use this as an opportunity to fundamentally change how we live and how we work. Now, uh, Telstra's putting its money where its mouth is, so to speak. Uh, Andy Penn also made what some may consider a rather novel commitment to the agile management philosophy of advantaging ad-lib collaboration and cooperation over process. Here it is in his words. Even before COVID, digital disruption was forcing many organisations to manage change and make decisions more quickly than ever before. COVID only intensified that with companies under pressure to make their business models fit the changing requirements. The need for speed is only going to increase as the forces of digitisation, globalisation and automation continue to accelerate. To respond to this at Telstra, we've moved 11,000 people over the last two years to work in agile teams. We'd already done a lot of the hard yards pre-COVID and we will be fully agile by the end of this year. Now, agile is one of those concepts where everybody knowingly when you mention it, but I'm not sure that its power is yet really fully understood. The simplest way for me to articulate agile is that historically, organisations were run and would organise their work vertically through traditional functions, sales and marketing, operations, product development, systems and IT. In Agile, you completely turn the company on its side and you focus on what you need to deliver in the next three months. What products are we launching? What assets are we building? What services are we delivering to our customers? And then you organise your resources, your work and planning and accounting around that, not around the functions. It forces you to regularly review and where necessary change your priorities in response to the market and to customer dynamics. And importantly, it also forces you to more directly align your resources behind your priorities. This is not something that actually happens easily in the old functional model where fiefdoms and silos can dominate, particularly in large complex companies. During COVID, a lot of leaders deprioritized innovation as they focused on business continuity, productivity, and importantly, health and safety measures. On the other hand, there were many examples where the crisis has provoked innovation and creativity and shown that businesses can adapt quickly and creatively when they need to. It's the one area, wherever, however, where it is harder to gauge what the impact of working from home has been. But it is crucially important that we re-establish and even increase our focus on innovation and creativity if we are to capitalise on this moment. So how do we do that when we're working virtually? Now, I hear a lot that a virtual meeting cannot replace face-to-face. Well, maybe that's true, but I would say that not all virtual meetings are the same. The quality of the technology you are using, the functionality of the tools, the reliability of the connection, how well you manage the meeting to engage everybody, all play a major role in the quality of the outcome. And we have seen 
a rapid increase in the innovation in collaboration tools over a very short period of time. So there's some cool stuff out there. We need to support our people with access to the very best of these tools when and where they need them and arm them with the skills to get the most from them. This means we need to think about how we train, coach and mentor today's job market entrance in a much more virtual world. We've proven over the last 12 months that we don't need to be working in the office together to innovate. So let's build on that experience and challenge ourselves further. Okay, and finally, although the host really sought to discourage it, uh, Andy Penn did talk about the actual telecom business. He was asked the question from an audience member, will 5G replace the need for the NBN? And his reply could well be construed by the NBN and its government shareholder as very encouraging. So there's lots of technology that ultimately come together to make sure that we're all connected. NBN is a big one. That's basically NBN looks after all of your fixed broadband needs at home. 5G is another one because 5G is obviously providing mobile coverage. Satellite plays a role. Uh, other technologies play a role as well. The bottom line is we need all of them to be successful in the future because if you think about the reality of the world where the data demand is only continuing to grow and our need for connectivity is continuing to grow, we need all of these technologies to work together to be successful. 5G is really exciting because the thing about 5G is that um, it's the next wave of mobile technology which is even faster and has more bandwidth than 4G. But you could not take all of the data that's going over the NBN and put it on the 5G networks. It's just it doesn't have that much capacity. So that's why they need to work together. The difference with 5G, of course, as well, is it's also wireless. And so in the world of what we call the Internet of Things, where you can sort of connect lots of things or put sensors in lots of things, you need to be able to do that wirelessly. You can't put wires to sensors in wheelie bins and self-driving cars and all of those other things you want to automate. And so the mobile network gives you the ability to connect. Um, we need them all. And actually, in many respects, they're interrelated and, and they're interconnected uh, as well. So it's not a case of one or the other. It's a case of we need all of our technologies to work together, which is why I've said in sort of previous forums, there is a moment in time now, particularly as we've got to the end of the rollout of the MBN, to really create a vision for the future of telecommunications for Australia over the next decade, because fundamentally it is the it's the highways and it's the it's the network that keeps us all connected and, and is enabling us to do all, everything that we're doing in terms of working and studying from home as well. So that's going to be crucial, and I think there is a moment in time now with the end of the rollout um, and the launch of five G to really build a, an exciting vision for telecommunications for the future which is technology agnostic and make sure that we're all you know, connected with the bandwidth that we need. Well, this is the week that was, and we're looking at the week that was with Rowan Pierce, the executive editor of Comms Day. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Graham. I guess uh, we'll start off with uh, an exciting new company that's listed on the Australian Stock Exchange or Securities Exchange, showing my lineage here, uh, hailing all the way from Perth in Western Australia. Tell us all about it, Rowan. 
Yeah, so so Pentanet. So they're they're actually they're four years old, but they um they had their IPO in December and they just like this week were formally listed on the ASX. So really interesting bunch. Um, as you said, WA based ISP and they've been announced as the kind of a uh, the the local member of NVIDIA's uh, GeForce Now Alliance. So GeForce Now is NVIDIA's cloud gaming service and essentially um. In the US and EU, NVIDIA operates its kind of own service, but it's partnering with telcos in other markets. So, um, yeah, so basically some of, some of the funds that Pentanet raised from the IPO, they're going to actually use for buying NVIDIA services to local, launch a local pilot of GeForce now. So I had a chat to um, the founder, Stephen Cornish, about this, and he basically said that the, the, deal, the deal includes really a, um, a pathway to exclusivity, as he put it, for um, for GeForce Now in Australia, which to me is like kind of quite remarkable, really, when you have this WAISP that's negotiated this this deal with this um, this global tech giant. I mean, Nvidia has about like eighty uh, percent of the graphics card market, so you know, rel- in Australian terms, like absolutely massive. So I think that's that's quite interesting. The other the other interesting thing that Pentanet is doing is that they have their own kind of um, fixed wireless network, and they've actually been working with Facebook to roll out um, Telegraph, which is the kind of Facebook developed. Um, wireless mesh technology so i think that's kind of um you know they've got these two two interesting aspects to their business and actually the other thing worth mentioning is that um the last year a former iinet ceo um david buckingham signed up to be pentanet's chair so it's kind of um be really interesting to see how they go now that they're a publicly listed company moving on um the big story of the week in the overall internet space was of course uh, what's happening with google uh, in Australia, um, uh, the week before last, uh, they and Facebook were before a Senate inquiry looking into whether or not they should be paying some money over to the news organisations. The ACCC doesn't waste any time. <laughs> this this week, they came out with a uh, interim report into a study on on Google's dominance in ad tech. So, can you tell us all about that, Rowan? Yeah, so it's really, this is like another outcome, um, you know, traces back to the ACCC's digital platforms inquiry. So like a lot of lot of scrutiny of Google and Facebook and also like regular direction on a whole range of fronts. Um, I guess like you mentioned the media bargaining code. There's also the, the ACCC is looking at like apps marketplaces. So things like Google Play. Um, so yeah, so ACCC has released the interim report of like another inquiry, which is this digital advertising services inquiry, which raises a lot of concerns about Google's stranglehold on digital ads in the local market. So kind of um, like the ACCC is concerned about the fact that the Google's dominance is across the kind of like whole ad tech supply chain in Australia. So and that's based on a string of acquisitions a company has made. Um, also you know, the kind of immense amounts of user data that Google has gets its hands on through things like Search and Chrome and Android and that kind of thing. So, you know, in different parts of the kind of um, the supply chain, the ACCC reckons that Google has like, you know, a share that ranges from 50 to 60% up to like 90 to 100%. Um, and actually hinted that it could take, you know, there might be scope for legal action um, against Google uh, to address some kind of concerns, uh, concerns on the Competition and Consumer Act. Um, which would mean that actually, like, that would mean that the ACCC has three kind of court cases against Google because it's got another two at the moment. It's also indicated that it might also take legal action over the um, Fitbit acquisition as well. So it's kind of like all, all these fronts opening against uh, Google um, by the ACCC. And uh, I guess at the same time as well, so the ACCC's raised some quite um, 
what Google would probably consider radical ideas to introduce competition in the ad space. So things around enforcing data portability and that kind of thing. So it'd be interesting to see how Google reacts, given that they're already threatening to you know withdraw Google Search from Australia. So it's like, are they going to withdraw additional services or just like accept what happens or what happens next? Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things I want to add there. Um, you know, I've, I've been in touch with a few Google insiders over the past week or so, and they assure me that their threat to pull out of Australia in terms of search is no bluff, that they really genuinely do think it disrupts their business model here. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. The other, the other thing, um, uh, more broadly, is that this isn't just happening to them in Australia. Um, you know, in, in the US, there's a number of states uh, who are taking antitrust action against Google. The EU is is taking a good look at Google, and I think there's some some cases there. Facebook's also getting targeted. I, I think there's uh, 48 states of the 50 in the US are taking action against Facebook. So there's definitely a lot of pressure on them. And I, I, it, it brings me back to um, something we talked about last week with Bevan Slattery, where what people don't appreciate is that these companies make up a massive amount of the market cap of the US stock market. Uh, I think the, the five top tech platforms, Netflix and Apple are in there as well, have more market cap than the bottom 268 companies of the S&P 500. You know, five companies are worth more than the other, than the bottom 268. So if... If there's a lot of if there's enough antitrust actions that get up around the world, that might do something to their values. And of course, if we go back to the dot com boom at the turn of the century, it was U.S. antitrust action against Microsoft that started the dot com collapse because the Nasdaq collapsed eight percent on the day that um, Microsoft was successfully prosecuted and made to strip out Internet Explorer from the Microsoft operating system. So will history repeat? That's the big question, Rowan. I think, well, look, I mean, this, this, this could all be like, like way out of date in a few days, depending on what happens with GameStop in the US. It's like, who knows, maybe there'll be a GameStop crash or something. Well, insider's tip there. I, I've just read in the past few minutes that all those Reddit people are moving on and they're going to start mucking around in the silver market. So, so let's see what happens there. Actually, Do- Dogecoin is up. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, joining us today, Rowan. Well, we're continuing our look at the week that was with Simon Ducks, the chief editor of Comms Day. Hi, Simon. Hi there, Graham. Now, it was a short week this week in, in uh, comms day land, um, so not as not the, the full flow of stories that we might usually enjoy in a normal week, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't uh, intrinsic, interesting news value in what we did run. And I, I was um, particularly intrigued by a story you wrote this week on uh, Open RAN coming to Australia. And of course, open source is, is a, um, a phenomenon or a movement that's cut across many sectors of the economy. And, and the obvious one being in um, operating systems of, with Linux, for example, uh, disrupting Windows. Um, and uh, of course, this, this movement's come to the radio access network space, and it looks like it might be coming to Australia. 
That's right, Graham. Uh, the thing that sparked my interest was the fact that the four biggest mobile operators in Europe have signed a sweeping memorandum of understanding, essentially, to back the implementation of open RAM-based solutions. Now, we already know that Vodafone Group is very active in this space. Um, you've got uh, now lining up with them uh, Telefonica, Orange and Deutsche Telekom. And uh, the interesting thing that, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with uh, open source uh, and any of these uh, open standards that have been developing, and uh, if you look at network function virtualization as well, we're seeing uh, a, a similar sort of move there where you're essentially abstracting the software layer from the hardware itself. Uh, uh, the radio access network uh, is one of the big last bastions, if you like, and uh, the thing is the inevitability that everyone uh, is suggesting is that it is going to get commoditized. Now we're just trying to see how that's going to happen. Now, uh, in the US, uh, we've seen uh, Congress put $750 million uh, towards backing Oran, and uh, they have their own geopolitical reasons for doing that. But uh, when you look at Australia, I, I thought that the uh, operators here have been fairly quiet about it, and they're all very uh, tied to uh, key vendors. So I thought I'd go and ask them all uh, what they're up to, essentially. And interestingly, it did prove uh, that uh, all of them have got a keen eye on it, and Optus uh, went as far as to tell us that they're actually uh, trialling the technology. We have uh, Telstra in the Open RAN Alliance. Um, Telstra are very close with Ericsson, who doesn't uh, support Open RAN as much as uh, some of the other vendors out there for uh, obvious reasons. And uh, TPG, on their part, uh, essentially uh, also said that they're uh, keen to see how the technology rolls out. And in fact, uh, their Singapore uh, subsidiary essentially is already uh, have a deal with uh, Rakuten to do open RAN in Singapore. And uh, so I think what we're going to see is a little bit more um, information coming out from the Australian operators uh, as they uh, look at this, uh, but I can't see uh, any major drive for Open RAN in Australia as yet because there's still uh, the technology still needs to uh, go through some process and standardization. But I'm sure, uh, given the innovation that we're seeing on the Australian mobile networks, that we're going to see some of that um, uh, activity ramp up a little bit as well. Yep, and ultimately cost means everything um, in the telco space, but when margins are so thin and so fine, anything you can do to rest yourself another point or two of EBITDA will be adopted. It's it's a case of when, not if, really, isn't it? Okay, move, moving on. Um, you had another very interesting story uh, in Friday's comms day, um, and that was regarding a, a, a carrier that maybe a lot of people haven't heard of called Field Solutions Group. Um, getting into a very interesting new market. Tell us more. That's right. So Field Solutions are an interesting player because uh, some people will know them as the uh, regional and remote uh, telco specialising in doing uh, deals with uh, Shire councils to roll out networks. The uh, thing that they're actually looking to do now uh, is uh, become a wholesaler of choice but offering a network management outsourcing layer to other smaller retail service providers. 
they have a uh, a couple of years back they bought a, uh, a network management platform called Ordnance, and they've been developing this thing to become a tool that will handle essentially uh, the CVC arrangements, the billing, the rating, uh, and so on, uh, including uh, multi-chassis um, uh, deployments uh, and. Uh, all of this essentially allows an RSP to turn up and uh, with a set of APIs uh, be able to take advantage of this. And FSG has actually signed up MyRepublic uh, to do just that. And uh, MyRepublic, who uh, have recently had a new uh, country manager uh, put in place, uh, looking to essentially become mostly a sales and marketing organization, which is focusing on their core, uh, as you know, uh, margins are quite uh, tight uh, when you look at doing any sort of uh, retail broadband offering. And so when you're looking at having to manage wholesale relationships with a, a number of the key wholesale players, because uh, as you know, you've only got Telstra and Optus that are actually connected to all 121 of our MBN POIs. Uh, we know Aussie Broadband's getting up there. I think they're around mid-70s. Uh, now, but uh, because you have to have those uh, arrangements in place, everyone has to turn and try and uh, use these guys uh, for some of that connectivity essentially. So, FSG uh, with this platform is taking uh, some of that pain away for the smaller RSPs, and that's what they're looking to do. And one of the side uh, benefits of the deal that they're looking uh, to work on together. Uh, which will be over six years as well. And uh, from memory, I think it was $45 million uh, uh, expected revenue over that uh, time period. Uh, My Republic is also going to be offering uh, its services over um, FSG's footprint as well. That, that's really interesting. And also sort of from the My Republic um, side as well, the Singapore company that came into Australia a few years ago of big promises uh, and I guess to be fair, they maybe haven't done as well as they expected. Some some of the other, um, let's call them challenger brands in, in that fixed broadband space, uh, like Aussie Broadband and Vodafone, have probably done a bit better than and, and maybe uh, stole some of the, the, the space <laughs> that My Republic expected uh, to occupy. And of course, this gives My Republic a chance to reboot in a way, start again, look approach the market with fresh eyes and uh, inject a little bit more competition, particularly at that high end of the market in terms of the high speeds, which they're aiming at. Of course, uh, whilst all this is happening, of course, um, uh, on Monday, um, NBN will be introducing uh, all its new rebates for RSPs who sell high-speed services. So it'll be interesting to see if that gives the market a bit of a kick along as well. where basically they can sell services that might cost them $60, $70, $80. They can get them for, I think it's $58 for six months. So uh, we'll, we'll see what that does in, in that, that end of the market. Well, thank you very much, Simon, once again for joining us. We'll see you next week. See you later, Graham. Well, that's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.